Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, it's been a while since we've talked. You've been in Canada, and now you're back. And in parts unknown. Parts unknown, right? Exactly. It's uh, Canada, as we like to say in the U.S., our quiet neighbor to the north. Although not so quiet in the age of Donald Trump. I mean, like I feel like, I mean, Trump. It's the age of things that never, that, you know, never cease to amaze you. He got like our response uh, to Donald Trump has been to legalize cannabis. Yeah, because otherwise, How the Cana- you go? Cana- you're going to have a lot of impolite Canadians, and that's not acceptable. There's a like, lot of deep inhaling happening today. It's like, dude, whoa. Yeah, I mean, because <laughs> like, if if you can if you can piss off Canadians, right? You're really you, you're you, really really a douchebag. It's an accomplishment, right? It is. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you sort of you. you I, I'm sure he'll be he'll be quoted on that, like in the. In in the history books, right, and yeah. even Canadians. So, speaking of Canada, which is a diverse society, as is England, where you reside in the London area, and so there's a pluribus and an unum in both of those places. Although different, <laughs> the, you know, the diversity and the unity have different histories to them. And the United States, of course, has its own history with that term, which is kind of at the heart of the founding and we were talking before we began recording this podcast a little bit about nationalism we decided we decided it would be worth talking about so as it feels like it feels like it's one of these uh big questions of the moment doesn't it that well what was donald trump when he spoke at the united nations not that long ago and 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 said you know we got to move past an ideology of globalism and embrace an ideology of patriotism and i know he didn't write that you know but 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 somebody somebody you know on his crew did and it and it's a it's a thoughtful like that's a statement worth unpacking isn't that like saying like if i was giving a toast at your wedding and like Chris, I want to say to you, uh, you know, this is lovely. I don't really believe in monogamy. I'm more of a polyamorist <laughs> myself, but good luck with it. And hey, sweetheart, if you don't like him in the future, here's my number. <laughs> I mean, what kind of like that? It's just a strange thing to say at the UN, right? I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's not, great, you're not, you're not, it's not a charming approach. So yeah, we're not United Nations, really, are we? And that was, you know, that was, that was my predecessor, predecessor, predecessor's conceit. But I've kind of given up on the whole model because that's really hard to do. And it's really just much easier if we accept that we don't get along and we're probably not going to get along. And so I'm just going to try to do what's right for uh, my tribe and uh, power to you. We'll see. We'll see who comes out on top of that struggle. You know, it's interesting. Well, first off, if we're talking about nationalism, we should define some terms, right? Because I think hmm. what when that term gets brought up, a lot of times it might mean something populist, you know, maybe even hmm. reactionary or something. There'd be a broader term where you're thinking about people like, I was just 
listening to a discussion with Jonah Goldberg and Meyer Solovichek, who I think is a rabbi in New York, who wrote hmm. this article called Saving American Nationalism from Nas- Nationalists. And he's, and I think it sounds like he's a political scientist and a rabbi, and he's looking at the biblical sort of nationalism that, you know, where Israel is given borders and they're called not to transgress them. And he's sort of advocating for na- for nationalism as an alternative to a sort of mm-hmm. globalism. But but we could think, right, if, if we're ta- talking, thinking nationalism like an org- a political order based on independent nations, we have nation states. We can think of examples in our country and right, our world right now of nations that aren't states, right? The Kurds are a nation mm-hmm. and not a state, right? They have a national mm-hmm. identity, which transcends, you know, you know, we have an evolution, you know, families become clan, you know, get, lo- become loyal and, and, you know, and, cl- and clannish and then clannish become loyal to each other and become a nation. I but mean, there's can, a whole continent called Africa that is comprised of nations that aren't states. Right, right. Or, or even if they, they, yeah, exactly. Right. There's a whole continent. And then you have Iraq, which is a state, but not a nation, right? That, you know, we've mm-hmm. kind of, Hmm. We, we've sort of, in a post-colonial world, we, you know, hmm. we, oftentimes Western colonial powers have the, we break it, you bought it. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, possible. Uh, and so, you know, we, you know, like. Well, you got to give people something to do in the future, right? You're going to go to the trouble of becoming independent and setting up a parliament. You need some intractable social challenges. Otherwise, what are you going to do? But, you know, it's interesting when you look condescendingly, if somebody looks condescendingly at Iraq or something, you think how long did it take Germany or England to become what we think of them today? I mean, they're incredibly diverse uh, places where people speak all sorts of languages, have different religious traditions, have to, and it, eventually they become nation states, but it takes centuries, right? Like, before these states. So you, we've sort of forced on, you know, a, 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 a geographic era, area, a, a kind of... Hmm. nation state thing without a national hmm. identity so, if i so, can just so many threads if i can just bounce off of something you just said when you said like look at look at the uk look at the us look at canada how far they've come and i suppose one of the big questions of the moment is you know how far have we come right and well, we've it, elected it, donald it, trump in the united well, states i mean that's, but I mean, even like, can, like, can we get any further <laughs> But, you know, take uh, even take Canada, which, you know, the rest of the world, I mean, the rest of the world must think the Canadians are really conceited, right? But we, we kind of have this post-national conceit that we are, you know, we're, we've somehow figured out how to become the healthy, multinational, uh, multicultural society. And, uh, you know, I think for a long time, we've kind of wrapped ourselves in that blanket. And I think the challenge that that presents to society, and you certainly see it here in the UK with Brexit and everything that's happening, the populism that we see in our politics today, the challenge that that presents is when you feel like we've come this far, that questions of uh, national identity um, are are now sort of uncomfortable because we're past that and we're in some kind of post-national space. That's when we get into this dangerous place where there are some people in the democratic society who feel like, well, actually, I still need to have that conversation. But now I live within society where it's impolite to do so. And so we're not talking about these things publicly anymore. Instead, we are talking about them sort of in our tribe or in our house or we're expressing them in the privacy of the voting booth. But but we've kind of lost the public space to treat these questions because 
we've already come so far that we're not supposed to need to talk about these things anymore. Right. And I think in, when you think of the, the post-national identity, national identity, it's, we're almost thinking like a post-tribal identity, right? Like that's, mm. that's what you're, we're, you know, because when mm. we're posing it, we're, it, sometimes we use the word nationalism to stand in for tribalism. And yeah, yeah and that's really, your identification of terms. It's really very slippery, isn't it? Yeah, because really on some level, right, what allows a, 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 a nation that is multi-ethnic to sort of not feel tribal is there's a strong national identity, right? That, that hmm. all the, all the, all the modes of difference included in the, in the, in the broad, diverse palette that is the country, like th- what they, what the, there's some sense in which there's a broader overarching cohering hmm. sense of identity, right? So, so on one level, if that goes away, you're going to be more tribal, <laughs> which hmm. is maybe what's happening in the United States right now, right? Hmm. Like it, is it, so I, I wonder, have you read, uh, so there's a great 2018 book by Amy Chua, uh, a law professor on political the tiger mom, the tiger mom. Uh, was she the, I didn't, I didn't know that. But she wrote it, the tiger mom book. Why, really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, wow. Okay. So, uh, let's just say a, a diverse intellectual, because uh, in 2018 she wrote Political Tribes. Uh, I think the, the yeah, I've seen her interviewed group. about that book. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations. And you know her her main story is that yeah, humans are tribal, uh, but actually America tends to see the world in terms of great ideological battles, or at least used to. And and like and so for example, that's a big part of why uh, Vietnam and Iraq and the 2016 presidential election were so shocking to America because we don't, we don't think in those tribal terms. Um, and, and I think, I think her, so what her takeaway is that, you know, so to come together, America needs to, it needs to acknowledge the reality of group differences, uh, acknowledge the reality that when you, uh, when you talk unity, but it's false, it's really just another form of, of division, of kind of trying to oppression, to oppress or to silence the differences. Um, but unless we are alive to the real inequities that divide us, how are we ever going to solve them? I feel it kind of similar to, so a guy over on this side of the pond, uh, David Goodhart, he wrote uh, last year this book called The Road to Somewhere. So it's kind of about, I think, like populist revolt and the future of politics. But, but so he's like a British conservative explaining Trump and, and, and Brexit. And, and really kind of he's making an argument that we can't, we can't just ignore, um, the, the group, you know, the tribal group identities of, of people that, you know, you've got these upwardly mobile people who are kind of willing to be from anywhere. Uh, but most people are actually from somewhere. And uh, if you identify as being from somewhere, then uh, you've got real concerns about things like uh, immigration and how it changes the somewhere that I'm from. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think that's right. And I think part of the issue with the United States, which is, I think, distinctive in world history, is we didn't have a kind of feudal past, pre- deep pre-modern past. You know, we p- immigration and in large numbers here happens in the in nascent modernity right and so hmm. you you have this we're the first country founded on something that's basically ideological you know, hmm. it, you know it, we hmm. don't have this sort of group we're not like italians or french or english 
you know, or Germans that have this long pre-modern tradition of tribes mm. becoming, having, mm. be, forming a sort of sense of national identity and then saying, okay, intention with these pre-modern it's pre-modern day is also now this enlightenment tradition this liberal Mm. tradition that we Mm. United States kind of comes here and and you could argue that I mean some people do argue that you know the the United States has as I'm sure does Canada there's dependent on a certain kind of Anglo tradition of of property rights and other things but even those they universalize they filter even what they borrow from the continent through enlightenment kind of principles and so they're now, of course, there's all sorts of tribal identity in, in the colonies, too, which is why, I mean, mm-hmm. we're, you know, one of the things that's so frustrating in American political, disc- political discourse right now is that there's this sense that it, it's, I've heard people say it's like Iraq, where the minority rules the majority, where, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the conservative, so you have, let me give you a trivia question. Who's the first? Who's Ooh, I like the first, trivia. I know, where it's pub quiz, pub quiz. Okay, okay. Who's the first Supreme Court justice to be confirmed? By a president who lost the popular vote, uh, to be nominated by a president that lost the popular vote and confirmed by a group of senators that were elected with far fewer votes than the people that voted against them. <laughs> Dude, like what kind of pub quiz is this? <laughs> That's fantastic, right? Uh, so I have no idea what the answer is. Neil Gorsuch. And the second one is huh. now Brett Kavanaugh. So what you have is huh. you yeah. have this sense in which right. the senators that voted for Gorsuch just like with Kavanaugh voted represented hmm. a smaller number of the population than the people that voted against him. And the president wasn't popularly elected. So hmm. you have this sense and people are like, well, it's not hmm. working anymore. Well, what we're living with in the United States is a bicameral system that was devised because of our diversity, right? Because of hmm. different concerns hmm. and, and a fear of majority population states, you know, overwhelming smaller states and all these things. And so to cobble hmm. together this, union you know we have that there's already that diversity but you're right i do think we don't think in terms of like americans we think like we could be americans in space like if a post-apocalyptic things thing comes and we've got to go get on big spaceships like battlestar galactic we've got the constitution the declaration of independence we've got these constitutional principles okay yeah, yeah that's yeah. the most american thing there that's is that's what we are and as long as we've got that with us we're we're still this society Right. Yeah. Which I mean, and you could look at that in good ways or bad ways. I mean, you know, like there are Enlightenment files that think it's amazing and there are critics of that tradition, at least that, you know, it's some of its deficiencies. It it would say that America is less rich for that. But yeah, I do think Mm -hmm. Chow's onto something. Chow's onto something because I think we probably, you know, well, you look at the Civil War or something. Apparently the union was our our union, self-imposed union was not as strong as we thought. I mean, did did Mm. Lincoln save the union or create it? You know, I mean, that's people Mm. argue. Mm. And I mean, I guess, you know, that is the um, the the great thanks, I think, that we owe to um, Donald Trump and Nigel Farage and Marion Le Pen and you know, some of the titular populists of this time is uh, helping everyone to wake up to uh, how important these questions of identity and um, ideology um, and and community are, and and how how wide ranging the possibilities of the answers might be, but that. Um, 
understanding our community and and daring to reinvent it that that is that is huge work and really important work and you know actually i so i live here in the uk right and every morning uh a girlfriend and i we we wake up we watch a bit of stephen colbert and it is actually just a nice way to kind of you know smile about about the world uh and about the news but that's there so is different some, watching it in the morning. Are you yeah, streaming, yeah, yeah. Are you streaming yeah, yeah. So it? it? Yeah, so to start the day rather than to sort of – well, I don't live in the kind of toxic conversation um, that I feel like one would live in if you're bombarded by the U.S. media. Um, but but what I was trying to express is there is something you know, maybe enormously pos- positive that we are becoming so engrossed in – in the questions of who are we and 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 who decides what we are and and who do we want to be and and how if at all can we ever gain control of that narrative and shape it you know these are such so much more interesting questions than how do we grow the economy by 2 or 3% or you know like uh how do we tinker with this or that uh system of you know social welfare all very important questions but but this this is the at the level of meaning and identity and and we've we've reinvigorated this conversation right now you know scary about thinking where this conversation can go right but also exciting that we're having it yeah and i think it reminds us that the tribalism that we see in those populist movements that are you know cropping up all over the world you know and and not just in europe and the united states i mean they look different mm-hmm. in other places but but there i think is that it is this sort of state of nature right that that mm-hmm. the kind of cosmopolitan liberal project is not the state of nature right we're tribal right. i right. mean mor- right. morality right. binds and it blinds right? right you you have an in group you know and and through evolution through you know the, i think you know, before agriculture, it's something like a hundred people is like what you've got as an in-group, right? And, right, and then, right, right. So about one fifty, that magic number, and then you right, right. break off and form another tribe. Yeah, and so the, that you know, when you look at say like German nationalists, like the Romantic German nationalism of the nineteenth century, that kind of comes in response to some of this globalist mm. stuff, enlightenment stuff. That's like the state of nature. Like, hey, whoa, 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 this is a little. You know, this, this now again, that doesn't mean it, it should, it should be preferable, but it, it, you know, because I think, I think that, you know, the, the, the post enlightenment way of, of doing society is actually us evolving beyond our capacity to go beyond what we're innately done for millennia. But yeah. it, 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 it is going to, and then when people have anxiety and when it's displacing, there's a temptation to just go back to what, is natural evolutionary, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess so. It kind of depends how optimistic we want to be about, um, you know, the liberal democratic project, because uh, you know. So I, I'm going to quote. I'm going to reference Uval Harari here, and as I do so, I again feel this intense inner jealousy at how often I can quote his ideas, and it's applicable to so many different conversations. Damn! It, damn it! want to do that <laughs> but it's like, it's like Seinfeld Newman it's like Harari <laughs> <laughs> so but you know he talks about how one of the distinctive capabilities of the human species is to think in fiction right beyond our five senses and and so you know we have these tools now these powerful tools of creating wide widespread fictions I mean we can be a country like China and 1.4 billion people and 
you know, it's not all 1.4 billion of them, but probably a good 1 billion of them feel that they are a part of the same tribe and, and they're collaborating in that shared fiction of, you know, we are one China. Uh, and that, I mean, so that is a lot more than 150 people, right? And that's because of the kind of technologies that we now have available to, to spread these fictions. So it's, so I think we have to be careful because sometimes the, 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 the nationalist and, and maybe let's say like the, the, the tribalist sort of that edge of the conversation reaches to our natural condition as the winning argument for why, you know, we've got to accept that reality and to try to break beyond that is, is, is kind of illogical, irrational, flies in the face of our nature. Well, there's plenty of evidence that we are capable of sharing much wider fictions. The question is, why don't we? In a lot of cases, what are the constraints? What are the interests in, in, forming smaller fictions to serve particular groups, right? Do you feel like we should say stories so it doesn't prejudice that? Because I feel like when mm. people, when you say fiction, it's sort of, it's almost just self-delusional. Like if we, but, but stories mm. are true. Like, I mean, stories are I mean, you true, mm. real, truer than fiction, whatever. but yeah. But when we're, we're telling stories, we're- Dude, I'm, I'm lighting, I'm lighting up my joint right now. I like that. I mean, I'm into that. You can't, if you were in Canada, you, can you do that in England? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I probably not. <laughs> I don't know what the law, I don't know what the law, I can't, I, Pennsylvania, I don't know what the laws are here. Like, uh, I think, I don't know. I don't know if we have medicinal weed here yet. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure. I guess this tells you about my recreational habit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Plausible deniability. Uh, or, that, or that I'm just a libertine. I don't care. Um, but yeah, you know, that, but, the, but those stories, you know, the, the hmm. stories are so definitive of who we are mm. and it's interesting because mm. this, con- this conversation i was just listening to uh with jonah goldberg and this guy this other rab rabbinical political thinker it, it's sort of for him it, it's it, the 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 climax of the story is when we get to nation states right where where the the, the ability of na- national nationhood and the concept of nationalism enables us to have a much more productive peaceable large scale societies. And then he's arguing that that's the best as opposed to sort of a global order, which has been the consensus, at least in both American political parties, he thinks, you know, some sort of the globe, some sort of conception of the global order. But then I'm saying, well, okay. I mean, I, I'm not saying, you know, he makes some good points, but then, you know, Harari has said, right, that it's a much smaller jump to go from building solidarity between 150 people and 150 million which we've done than to go for, or, or it's a much bigger step to do that than to go from 150 to 8 billion, 150 million to 8 billion, you know? Mm. So it, it, that is the question, mm. right? That, that what are, you know, the myths, the emotional myths we live by, mm. right? Well, well, we can have a story that can unite this many people, but it can't possibly unite that many people. Well, yeah, you're right. right. Well, it depends mm. what kind of story we're telling, right? Right. Right. That's right. I mean, are, are we telling a story that is uh, inclusive or divisive? But if we're telling an inclusive story, so again, this is where, and it, it's it's so hard now actually to to evaluate uh, the liberal democratic story. Um, you know, coming from a guy who lived in China for five years and was bombarded by a sort of a society that sees that as pure ideology, but at least you know one thing it had going for it is it was a universal story, right? It maybe was blind to its own biases and in, in 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 propagating the universalism, but it did it as a story. The structure 
was about how differences aren't as important as the as the thing we all share you know whether it is uh, our common humanity or our common spirituality right our our ability to all ask some of the same fundamental questions about who am i and why is this all right we have you know so uh, anyway it was a universalizing story um and nationalism patriotism these are uh within the structure of the story divisive right and so i think i think that's very very interesting is that you know making the shift and again you know uh, donald trump at the un was a nice way to kind of frame this shift from telling a universal story to telling a story that is whether you whether you come from a place of 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 a good intent or divisive intent, it is within its structure divisive. I think that is a, a profound shift, a, a profound shift. And, and we should mark, mark that moment because what are the implications of making that shift? I think within our own society, within geopolitics. Um, yeah. And, you know, and also the first part to foresee. I can think of that tells a story that's completely amoral. Right. I mean, like mm, you could, like right, you, right, like you right, could right. have, you could have right. a reasoned moral approach to either a kind of more internationalist approach to right. geopolitics, which prioritizes right. things like the UN or the European Union, or an approach that prioritizes the nation state and collaboration between nation states. Mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. could tell a moral story mm-hmm. about either of those approaches, mm-hmm. but Trump doesn't tell a moral story. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still kind of, I, mean, so I, I, I guess it's because he's, I think he's, and I don't say this judgmentally. I mean, trying to be descriptive here, but like, but I just don't think morality is something that motivates him as a person. Right. No, I I think that's so. That is a stunning. That is such an important insight that you make because what's interesting about that is in his amorality, he's consistent. Right. The story to the UN and say. Uh, you know, the response to the alleged assassination of this uh, Washington Post correspondence by Saudi Arabia is consistent, right? That that I don't believe that there is some kind of um, unifying moral field that allows us to sensibly communicate moral judgments across our patriotic communities. And, and so I'm not going to do that because that is just nonsensical it's like it's like trying to shout in space there's no medium along which my signal can travel right so in 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 that way there there is a it's terrifying to say there there's a profound consistency do you think this is like critical academic like academic like theorists and like philosophy or critical theory and stuff are going that's not what we meant because you know you have people in critical theory they say hey you know what (laughs) we got to be too quick about saying this morality and universal morality we got to do well we didn't mean a (laughs) morality because <laughs> in some sense it's like uh, well you know y- you think about relativism and, and, and the significance of that in an academic perspective you know like hey mm. there are real differences in cultures and perspectives and you know you mm. have to be wary mm. about stories about universal morality because people see things from you know situated perspectives and then Trump's sort of like alright I'll be that on steroids <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah well and so what's interesting is that you know, um, so there's a great, uh, a great sort of moral theorist, Alistair McIntyre. Have you read any of Alistair's work? I I have read lots of Alistair McIntyre, and I am constantly in dialogue with McIntyreans and 
Oh, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, I am. I have lots of. You're, this is a thing on which I am not uh, a disinterested party. Awesome. Okay. So we're going to have to. Well, first I'll have to reread my McIntyre, and then we've got to have a kind of uh, a McIntyrean uh, episode because it'd be fun to riff on that. But I, I'm, I'm thinking about after virtue and yeah, how it talks. Yeah. You know. So so you need a kind of tradition in which morality makes you know is intelligible. And I get, you know, I guess you could argue that for you know the last sixty, seventy-five years, uh, the United States was, you know, sort of operating within a tradition, and within that tradition, and let's speak in terms of sort of international affairs at the moment, uh, its actions had moral, moral content, moral quality, right? And 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 they were sensical. You could make sense of them within that tradition that was being practiced, and I think that. Uh, in the exercise of their foreign policy, presidents felt that those the boundaries of what they could do were sort of what was consistent with the tradition. And so, what um, what is actually happening in in the current administration of of Donald Trump by doing taking actions that seem so that's not what, he he's uh, he's choosing not to uphold the tradition. And and that's I suppose the the long term change that's going to happen in sort of you know international relations international society is that that tradition that gave a lot of actions a kind of moral character is is weakening and it's going to affect so to bring it back to a Canadian context I mean Canada you know we piggyback off of the American tradition that of of there is a kind of moral framework in which states behave with one another. Um, but if the main architect and sort of, you know, upholder of that tradition is no longer playing that game, it's going to be hard for us to to find a, a moral footing anymore. Yeah. And what Trump has done, I think, is what, because he doesn't know the tradition. I mean, this is, you know, mm. You, mm. you know, somebody that like mm. is is a potter and starting out might get lucky and throw a clay pot that's really good or something, but they'll never consistently do it. Right. Like, I mean, you, mm. you, the people that really change their tradition tend to be its masters. Like mm. Picasso just doesn't start doing painting far out stuff. Like he's, he's mastered realism and then goes into kind of moving beyond it for a purpose of critique or for critiquing some things in it, which he sees that need expanded. So mm. generally people mm. like Trump do don't, that doesn't evolve a tradition it's an attempt to sort of step away from it, hmm. which I think generally doesn't, you know, again, if you think that tradition is completely bankrupt, which often a lot, you know, your, hmm. your Trumps of the world do, right? Like this sort of, hmm. po, you know, post-war, World War II consensus of some basic things, you know, again, parties disagree on certain aspects of it, but there, there's a, there's a sense in which you're right. Those, there's a, there's hmm. a, there's a container in which those dis disagreements are contained generally, right? They're not. Hmm. They're not, you know, and, out somewhere completely distinct from it. Yeah, and you're right. And I feel like my world is turning upside down because, again, there is a consistency here. If if you believe that you know the tradition no longer serves because it's time to sort of shift the pendulum away from a, a globalizing narrative towards a a more um, nation centric narrative, then you know, that tradition, which is about a universal morality, um, is actually going to constrain 
us from doing some of the things that we now feel we should do within a, you know, quote unquote patriotic frame. Um, so it's, it's, it's consistent to abandon it, right? And to say that there's going to be a new one, which is much more state of nature. I mean, there must be, <laughs> there must be whole, I should go and find them. There's got to be some around, around here in the UK, probably at Oxford and Cambridge. Like, you know, the realists in international relations are probably, you know, all doing really well right now. Like, ah, oh, I'm so relevant now. See, I've been telling you all along, this is how states behave. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, and yeah, all this, yeah. all this liberal constructionism bullshit is just bullshit. <laughs> right, it's all held we together. We knew they'd right? come home eventually. <laughs> it's all just taped together, right? And yeah, I mean, mm. so it's it's interesting. I got I somewhat related. I think this this project just came out, uh, the Hidden Tribes study, and it's it's this group that have done some demographic work on America and they they basically say there's not two tribes there's uh there's seven and that David Brooks just wrote a column about this and it's called the white civil war and they say basically that eight percent of America is progressive activists on one on one end and six percent are devoted conservatives on the other and then they think that the in the middle are something like traditional liberals, 11%, passive liberals, 15%, politically disengaged, 26%, moderates, 15%, and traditional conservatives, 19%. I think the middle four or something like, are, 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 four of those are something they call like the exhausted middle or something. And so basically they're saying the people that are, but you look at, they think the majority of people, when you ask them about like in the middle, should people compromise and, and uh, you know, try to sort out disagreements? It's like 80%, right? But, hmm. but like, the people at the extremes are the, are the people that, that answer, those answers change radically for. Like, if you look at what they think, you know, I, I posted something on Facebook the other day. I was hmm. startled. PRI had a study that 80% of Democrats say they would not support a candidate with multiple sexual misconduct allegations as opposed to hmm. only something like 30% of Republicans, right? Like... Hmm. And and but actually, what they're arguing is, hmm. if you went to the exhausted middle, that wouldn't be that disparate. But hmm. the, the extremes who have a lot of money, but like this fourteen percent that make up the extremes, are the wealthiest, most affluent, and the most ideological. And part hmm. of David Brooks's point is, you can afford to have an ideology when you're that affluent, right? You, hmm. you can kind of, and, and so the sensible sort of less yeah, you can tribal, buy you can buy to create the world the way you want it to be. Yeah, yeah, and you, you, you have like leisure, you know, Aristotle says, right? You need leisure time to do philosophy. You know, you, you, the, you know, generally you have more time to go to conferences and, you know, and be on these sort yeah. of, you know, yeah. you know, cruises. You know, they have these magazines have these cruises where you can go and hang out with the ideologues, you know. <laughs> But Brooks's point Dear is God, the people- it would be great if you get on the wrong cruise. <laughs> like, oh, oh yeah. I thought this, what are you all? You people are all like biggest group of douchebags I've ever met. I must have gotten on the liberal boat or the Republican. <laughs> yeah, as long as it's not the teetotaling boat, if you do that, as long as it's not like the Mormon boat or something, because then uh-huh. you, know, you might have been together. But that he argues that the people in the middle don't have an, a philosophy or ideology, but they're. Mm-mm. They have some kind, and they kind of probably need more of it. Hmm. But, but I wonder how much of that, because it, you know, like I wonder how much, you know, a nation state like America is is devolving toward a state without nationhood because we have, you know, because the, hmm. uh, you know, although what holds what myth or what story holds us together? Yeah, and it gets harder and harder to tell a story. 
that people can buy into together. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. So like in the, in the nineties, there was still, I think a stronger sense of, well, yeah, obviously there was a stronger sense of we're, we're on opposite sides, but we're part of the same grand project. I think it was, I think it was Bill Clinton that said that, you know, like, um, Democrats need Republicans to uh, draw the lines that should not be crossed, and Republicans need Democrats to remove the lines that should not have been drawn. Yeah, right? and absolutely. That's, and, that, and, and that's sort of the dialectic, right? And that makes sense. But, but I suppose, like, what? So there is common story, and I suppose America will always have that, right? Whatever side you're on, it's you know the the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and and Washington and you know so. So there is the common story that is shared, kind of the origin story, the founding story. And, and, and that's going to be a powerful binding thing, right? The, the shared history. Um, but I guess there is less and less a present day sense that there is any credence to the notion that we are engaged in a common project and that uh, and that, you know, our democratic institutions are, are somehow a place where rational discourse happens and we arrive at some enlightened sense of the general interest that we share, um, which was really important in kind of the, the liberal theory of democracy, right? That being ruled by reason was how we gave power to the people without becoming um, subject to that power, right? How do we give power to ourselves without being prisoners to ourselves? And the idea was, well, we give power to ourselves to make decisions, to make laws based on reason. And, and, and that reason is what makes us all free, right? And I mean, that's just, I, I, I mean, it, it's so, it's such a disconnected fantasy from the reality people see in how politics functions. It's really, we're just taking turns dominating each other. So, you know, when the Republicans win, and if I didn't rep vote Republican, then I'm just going to spend four to eight years being a subject of the Republican king. And when the Democrats win, and if I voted Republican, I'm just going to spend four to eight years being a subject of the Democratic king. And and so we're trading, we're taking turns dominating the other, but we're no longer actually, uh, you know, co- you know, co-holders of power in a shared project. And, and if that, I think, becomes the, the, the story that maybe there was once, um, a, a sense of common purpose, but now we're just taking turns holding the rod of power. Then I think that becomes the way to break the history. And you do reach that point of kind of national um, national test, right? Are we are we going to do this again? Sorry, I, I I recently saw Hamilton, so I've got you know, this is all <laughs> the, the the founding fathers' aversion to political parties is very fresh in, in my mind, <laughs> <laughs> along along with some some great song and dance scenes. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know, I'm trying to think about. I was just rereading some of the, some stuff in the Federalist Papers, and like. Oh, you are such a geek. It was because I listened to something <laughs> and they're referencing it. I went to look it up and they're talking about having a, gov a government, yeah, by reason and not by accident and, and, and by sort of debate mm -hmm. or not by force where just normally most people have lived in governments where the, somebody 
there's divine right of kings. You have power that enforces it and that sort of thing like that. And 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 you don't. So this idea of a deliberative, but you know, it's interesting because, yeah. like, what the Arab Spring teaches you, right, is you can have democracy without the these sort of values of mutuality, right? Because you just have majority mm. rule, and that's what mm. people are feeling like America is becoming. You just have a tyranny majority rule, mm. and you don't have these norms in the sense of there's some things you can't legislate, like there's there's mm. norms, traditions, and rights that mm. that that protect it from not being mm. a tyrannical democracy, mm. Mm. right? And that, and you wonder is that being lost, and then does it just become like a, a, an illiberal democracy? Is it being lost? And I guess also if we're if we're going to you know. Um, you know, be be good, self-aware, critical thinkers. Uh, did it ever exist? Right. So we can I can pull my Jurgen Habermas off the wall and talk about how well you know founding fathers. It sounds great, but the reality is that they were able to kind of have passionate debate and arrive at what is in the general interest because they were actually a single class. Right. They were similarly situated towards the world. We're we're, we're property owners. We have laborers who work on our behalf. Uh, and it was, you know, it, it took until Marx for society to really say, well, you know, actually, that's that's you guys can be rational with one another because you have a similar class situation. But if you look at labor as a class and recognize that they have very different interests, that what you are doing is dominating them. And as soon as you have classes that just don't have a lot of rational overlap, then maybe we're asking too much for a a democratic deliberative process to get people to realize, oh yeah, you know, that would be in everyone's interest if we did that thing. I mean, maybe that general interest just is really hard to find unless, here's an idea, unless we put everybody on an even playing field so that we all have a similar situation. But I think that we tried that and there were a couple world wars and it it didn't work out, but well, also, I mean, do you have to keep telling a, an expanding story so that mm. so y- you look at like mm. democracies mm. take place or birthed in like liberal democracies are birthed in it by in fairly elite situations or by interested parties, but then as more and more people are enfranchised, can the story be? This is what you know people like Martin Luther King did, right? King didn't say <laughs> that the story was in was sort of over. He thought that. People aren't actually living into the story and the fullness of its of of its founding character. Mm. So he kind of reinvested mm. the meaning with an expanded, mm. it, 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 with a more inclusive, enfranchising you know story. And so, it, it can can you mm. keep bringing new people to the table to tell you know tell the story, expand it, and get, again continue going mm. beyond tribe, you know more and more. I guess. I guess. I guess the. The kind of the the answer we land at is um, yes, and if if that became a part of kind of the shared intent of the project that we need to expand the story uh, and we need to bring people into the story, then you know maybe this could work. You know maybe this maybe this could hold together. Um, and you know I, this is I guess the classic American line about a more perfect union, right? If if everyone buys into fundamentally, this is what we're trying to do is build a, a more perfect union among us, among these people here. Um, what's challenging is that that really does take a certain you know narrative of 
community and common citizenship. Um, and, and it probably does take, you know, the big leaders that society sees as, oh, okay, that's how to behave, um, advocating that narrative. Uh, but, but when the, the president is so openly divisive, so openly not about expanding the story, uh, but winning it, then the fragility of that narrative, I think, kind of becomes exposed. Yeah, it can't be a zero-sum game yeah, right. story. Like that, right. that, if we all believe it's a zero-sum right game, yeah. if we all believe it's a zero-sum game, then um, I'm going to fight for my share. Yeah, right. And, and I'm probably going to lose to you because, I mean, you work out a lot more rigorously I, than I do. I, 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 I try. But that is interesting, right? When you <laughs> but I've see, got numbers, right? <laughs> when you see everything in terms of the zero something, because I wonder, you know, when you think about mm-hmm. somebody like Donald mm-hmm. Trump, when you come up mm-hmm. in a in a regional real estate market where it is a zero sum game, if that developer gets that building, I can't have it, right? And that that seems mm-hmm. to me to be how one narrow segment of the mm-hmm. economy works, but it's not how mm-hmm. a broad society works. So you wonder how somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And then can, but then also when you have a bunch of disenfranchised mm. people in the country that feel like mm. they're somehow being left yeah. behind by, yeah. uh, you know, the, the current global economy mm. and things that, that telling yeah. a zero sum story makes sense of their pain. Yeah. No. So now I hear like the, I, I hear the economists in, in this room finally nodding their head and saying, okay, now you're talking about something that interests me. Right. Which is the argument that, um, you know, globalization was a non-zero-sum narrative, right? That we're all going to give, we're all going to take, we're all going to be better off. We're going to grow the pie this way. But, you know, the global financial crisis and what's happening with economic inequality and, you know, now more and more people see it as zero-sum. And so if China's doing better, it must be mean that we're doing worse. If they're growing jobs, it means they're taking our jobs. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, so it's about growing the story, and the economists would say that, you know, more practically, it's about growing the economy. And it's, it's interesting. So as the China specialist, I can totally see this, right? Um, I think we talked about this before, but in China, uh, the policy problems are so big scale and hard, but the political problems are pretty easy because the economy is growing, right? So the pie keeps getting bigger. And so every year we just buy off more groups of society. We don't have to make any hard choices and say, Oh, this year we got to spend more on, Healthcare, so we got to take some money away from cities and, and put it on, or we need to spend more in the military, so we're going to take it away from health. No, we just spend more on more things. But in um, you know the um, you know Canada, the U.S., Western Europe, where economic slowth is pretty slow, it's all about trade-offs, right? It's all about picking winners and losers, and especially the last ten years, where you know it's it's felt. Like a lot of people have really felt that, oh, yeah, this this is a zero sum game. Well, then I've got to fight my corner. Yeah, and that and that seems to be that's just interesting. Going back to where we started, like if you, it's almost like if you have that sort of conversation, it, it does the sort of nationalism and sovereign national states versus a more global approach to to the, the shaping of the world order. Does that argument even matter if you don't even have functional nation states that can, can allow, you know, if the internal mm. decay in, mm. in, in pluralistic democracies becomes so bad that, that, that you, you don't have much to bring to the table to even deliberate whether or not you could have strong international mm. institutions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so in some ways, I feel like this, this debate about like globalism, nationalism, the universal versus the tribal is, is just 
one site of uh, kind of the larger debate, which is, um, you know, what I call like the unstoppable forces versus the indomitable will, you know, and the unstoppable forces like, uh, you know, um, economic, like automation, you know, economic transformation, growing economic inequality. I mean, all the incentives are baked in and this stuff is just rolling forward and, and it's going to change your life whether you want it to or not. It's unstoppable. And on the other hand, you know, the wide arc of history tells us that, you know, there is this kind of almost scary, indomitable will in human society that, you know, we will break it if we don't like it. Um, we will be willing to risk it all to create something that we think is fairer or better. And isn't most of world history shaped by unintended consequence? I mean, the biggest th- fear of something like, uh, you know, like the indomitable will is like, how much do we really shape things or can we shape things or, 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 or you know, how much does something like the automobile change things? And we don't think it's going to, ch- you know, it, you know, it changes not just transportation, but, you know, teenage pregnancy, P- kids can have sex in cars. Like, I mean, the, like, I, I just think of so much like an attempt to, to resist something uh, assumes that you have so much a- determined agency. Like, if we do X, then Y. But mostly, I mean, we, we, you know, so many things are unintended. You know, you look at somebody like Gutenberg, pious Roman Catholic, right, who invents something that undermines the Catholic Church, the printing press. Right. So, I mean, you just, you know, so much of the indomitable will, it, it, it would be great if it, if it had foresight, but it often doesn't. Right. Aren't all maps fundamentally things that are drawn from past experience? I mean, they're used to get somewhere in the future, but they're all based on repository wisdom. Right. There's no map based on things. Right. They're, 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 they're senses of where we've been before. And attempting to chart that, but there's no map we can chart, you know, purely from where we have not yet been, right? Like, because we've not been there yet, which is why the map making must go on. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.